And when I left, I remember being overwhelmed by three clear and distinct thoughts. My first was, God, I'm so grateful. It was so so much gratitude of just for his mercy and just realizing, God, I didn't deserve any of this. You are so good. You've set me free of my sins. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Tony Wilson, and you've joined us for The Profile, where we sit down every week and interview a Christian with a significant story to tell. The Profile is brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity Magazine. My guest on the show today is Father Mike Schmitz, a Roman Catholic priest based in Duluth, Minnesota, where he has a diocesan responsibility for youth and young adults, and he's also chaplain at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. Father Mike has risen to global prominence after launching a Bible in a Year podcast in 2021, and more recently, the Catechism in a Year, which is running throughout 2023. Father Mike has a worldwide audience for his podcasts, homilies, and books, published with Ascension Press. Father Mike, welcome to The Profile. Thank you very much, Tony. I really appreciate you having me. Well, on The Profile, we like to start right back at the beginning of somebody's formation. And so knowing that you grew up uh, as a Catholic in the northern United States in the 80s, I uh, wonder if you could just sketch a little portrait of what that was like for you. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Thank you. for And, and thanks. I, honestly, I'm really grateful for you having me uh, on uh, Premiere. It's just uh, what a, it's a gift. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, I was born and raised essentially in northern United States, just not too far from the Canadian border. Uh, we we have roads and everything. <laughs> There's electricity here. We have indoor plumbing and there heating and cooling. But uh, yeah, so my my father was a orthopedic surgeon and my mom was a nurse, and they had six kids. I'm I'm number four of the six. And at one point, uh, my dad was finishing up his residency at Cook County General Hospital in Chicago. And they both are from Minnesota, but they're from the metro area, the Twin Cities area of St. Paul, Minneapolis. And uh, they said, well, we, we want to move back to Minnesota, but we don't want to live in the Twin Cities. We want to live maybe somewhere nicer than that, somewhere out of town. And they said, why don't we, where, they talked about where they used to vacation as kids and they used to vacation in Northern Minnesota, a, a little town called Brainerd. And they said, why don't we just live where we used to love to vacation? And so that, so that's what they did when I, after I was born, my dad finished residency and the four of us, cause I was the only four at the time moved up to Brainerd. My dad started his medical practice up there. And then later on, two more kids came along. And, uh, as, as you mentioned, I was, I was raised Catholic and Roman Catholic. And, um, and so that, what that meant for my family is it meant that my mom and dad took it relatively seriously. They took the faith relatively seriously, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, as if, so it, it was like this, it was in the same way that. We were expected to, you know, sit down at dinner time and take our hats off when we walked inside, and uh, that when we went to go to bed, went to bed, we would say our prayers. It would be like no, and and also God is real, and God loves you very much, and God has a plan for your life, and it was all very normal for me, a very very normal. Now at the same time, I didn't like it very much. I had to go to a parochial school, so I went to a Catholic elementary school, and I didn't like going there. Not because it was bad; it was a great school, but um, our class was were so small, and all the girls were at the public school, and so I didn't want to be there. And then when it came to Sunday mass, I I just always thought I had better things to do. I was I was kind of bored with it, and so I really did not like uh, what I was. I didn't I didn't like church much. I'll say it like that. 
you didn't like church, but uh, you often refer to your family, and we'll we'll just co- co- come on to your family a little bit. You often refer to the fact that your 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 mum uh, made you go to mass, and you had to be really seriously ill before you yes. got a pass to skip to skip Sunday mass. So so it was a little bit more than a nominal Catholic faith, it would yeah. seem. Yes. And so, yeah, but I'm, I'm glad you said that because that is very, very true. It just seems so. It was very natural, though, in that sense of it wasn't. Um, so there there was a, an expectation very, very clearly. An expectation was, yeah, just like you said, that the only way you would get out of going to Sunday mass is if you're too sick to do anything else for the rest of the day. And and so there were times when I tried to get away with that. My mom's pretty smart, but I uh, <laughs> she might have just let me get away with it rather than avoiding, you know, rather than having a big, big fight or something. But but as something happened when I was uh, roughly 15, 16 years old, where and it just, it, I, I will call it just, and it's a movement of the Holy Spirit. It was an act of God's grace. And there's been so many of these in my life where it just like, nope, this is not because of me. This is because God is just so gracious and God is just so good. Um, but I was about 15 or 16 and uh, I knew about the faith and I knew the rules and I knew that what to say when it comes to who is Jesus. But at one moment I had an awareness of my own sin. And it wasn't like anyone told me anything. It wasn't like I got busted doing anything. It was just this, this, that's why I say it's the Holy spirit, just a complete act of grace where I had an awareness of, wait a second. I know the 10 commandments. I know what the, the laws are. I know what God expects of us because I went to Catholic school went to Sunday mass every Sunday. Uh, at one moment though, it was this awareness deep in my heart of, oh wait, I've done that. And that you know, I, I broken the commandments and they're not just these rules I broke, but like, oh my goodness, I, this is me. And I remember having this thought, like, I can't just like forgive myself. I need a savior. And it was like, bing, you know, that all of a sudden mm-hmm. it was, yes, that I, what happens, I would say it like this. I, thankfully I had been given the answer to the question my whole life. Again, my mm-hmm. parents loved me very much and loving God very much. I've been given the answer to the question, but I didn't have the question. I didn't care about the question. And, and so finally, when it was this, wait a second, I need a savior. I can't forgive myself was this. And, and here is everything you've been told that just now all of a sudden matters more than anything else in the world. And so I know I knew two things. I knew I needed to pray and I knew I needed, as I always say, I needed to go to confession. Um, I didn't know how to necessarily do either of those things yet, but uh, that kind of started me on this next step of just, okay, now, now I need to know. Now I need to have this relationship with God because he has just saved me. He has just forgiven me of my sins. He's just made me new. And I, I truly, I want to just live for him now. That's wonderful. And what's the context for that that moment? You know, this is a this is a pretty significant, pivotal moment in somebody's life. You know, what what was the context? Yeah. Well, the, the again, it was just it was the as I said, it's so the strange part is it wasn't like any externally tremendous uh, dramatic thing happened. It was just this eternal, in, sorry, internal conviction of oh my gosh, I've sinned. And that, that's it. It was just like, here's the Ten Commandments. And I've done those things. I've sinned against the God's, against what God has wanted. Like the here is here. I have this really blessed life with um, health and with family and with, I've had all, I've had all these opportunities. I've had every opportunity to say yes to God. And I haven't cared at all. And it was this conviction of, I've been wasting God's love. I've been wasting his grace. I've been indifferent and, and, and so insensitive to what God has done that it just, it was, 
it was pain. It was painful. And, and, and some of the, one of the, one of the, one of the things I continued struggling with after this was I had struggled with uh, a degree of anger, um, which might be common to a lot of adolescent boys. But for me, I, I, it was something that I was incredibly, incredibly uh, ashamed of. And it was something that I was, because I was trying to, I was trying to be kind. I was trying to be good to, especially to my siblings, you know, to my, my family members, my parents. And there are times when I was just like, wow, I'm so out of control. Like, what is wrong with me? I remember that having this, this one, like, you know, fight with one of my sisters and it was raining outside, just pouring downpouring outside. And which you might know a little bit about in England. And I, I walked outside into the rain and we, I, the, we were on a lake. Uh, and so there's a dock going out to the lake. And I remember just walking down these stairs, walking out on the dock and then just not stopping, just like, like just stepping off the dock into the water. And, and here I am fully clothed in the, in the very dramatic, apparently uh, in the water, rain's coming down and just weeping and saying, God, just could please just, I don't, I hate being this angry all of the time. Just please do something about this. And that was one of the acts of grace as well that I just recognized and not only recognizing the, the brokenness, but years later, that same sister, she was, I was just ordained and she was being asked by a religious sister, uh, one of our mutual friends. It's like, she said, what's, what's one of the most, you know, striking things about father Mike and his, you know, being a priest right now. And I had forgotten about the anger because it had been so, it had been gone so long. She said, my sister said, oh, he used to be angry, so angry all the time. And, and he's not angry anymore. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, God, I, I am so grateful because I was praying so long to, to do something with this anger and he took it and I didn't even notice, uh, just the people around me noticed, uh, of God's work, which is amazing. And, and are you able, have you worked through what the origin of that anger was, you know, where, That's where a great was that question. coming from? I don't know. I, I, I truly, I, I, I don't know. It was a, um. Yeah, you know, you know. So I think sometimes there can be a sense of powerlessness in our lives that gives rise to a frustration, and gives rise to, uh, you know, when you feel like you don't, again, don't have any power, don't have a voice, don't have. There's nothing you can do to change your situation. There are times when you'll do anything, like just lashing out becomes the the only thing I can do, because in every other aspect of life. I am powerless and voiceless. And I mean, my, my siblings still make fun of me right now. So oh, I remember when Mikey, when he would, you know, he would, he would be patient, patient, patient. And then, cause they poke at us, you know, poke at me. And then when I did this thing where I bite my lips, like this kind of thing, they said, that's when they knew to run because there's like, oh yeah, you're so good. And then all of a sudden we, when he, when he, when he bite his lips and then the arms will start windmilling. And, uh, that was then we all had to run. And it was like, oh, why is that? Well, because in that moment here again, powerless, voiceless, no, whatever you doesn't matter until all I can do is lash out. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's not just me. I think that's a lot of people, that's people in cultures, yeah, that's people in I'm families, sure. that's, you know, the human condition where, what do we do when we feel powerless? Uh, mm -hmm. What do we do when we feel like we don't have a voice? Well, we start shouting, you know, we start swinging our arms around and, and it's, it's not, not good. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the family because I, I, you often draw on the family, your family experience in the anecdotes that you, yeah. you, you bring into your podcast. And I, I do sense a great sense of warmth and security. Mm. I sense quite an active 
high-achieving, competitive family. And uh, I, I just get that sense from the sorts of anecdotes that you relate. Would that be fair? You're smiling, so I think that might <laughs> yes. be a kind of fair representation. Yes, I yes. know. Uh, it's so funny, too, because for us, kind of like the faith thing, it was all so normal, uh, that sense of... Um, so in the family, out of the eight of us, you know, including my parents, there are four physicians, um, uh, one nurse, uh, one priest, me, um, one of my sisters, she goes on tour with different performing artists and does wardrobe for them. So traveled all tra literally right now is traveling all over the world, uh, you know, dressing performers. And then my, uh, one of my brothers is in the special ops, special forces in the United States military. And, uh, so it's just like, but that, that never seemed to, to be a thing that was, um, I remember my mom just having the sense of whatever you do, uh, make sure you help people. That there wasn't, there wasn't a, and whatever you do, just do your best. Um, so there wasn't like the pressure of you must get A's. The The pressure was you must get the best grades you can get. That's it. That's it. It wasn't a matter of uh, you have to go into a certain field. It's just uh, you need to help people. And when you do that, you have to do your best which I'm so grateful for. So grateful. Yeah, it was a, a wonderful, a wonderful start to, to, to life. So we've got you to 15 and, and, and all of a sudden your faith has become personal. Uh, but between 15 and 30, you become a priest. And so there's obviously a period of discernment, Yeah, which clearly would be a costly decision that you're having to grapple with. Just just talk us through that, that, that process of getting from 15 to 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 thirty. Well, it was even that that very moment, the moment when um I had encountered the Lord and and I had what happened was so I started began praying, but also uh went to the sacrament of reconciliation or sacrament of confession. And uh the story that I always will share is that it was a Tuesday morning. I didn't know the rules. I didn't know like that they have special times for this kind of thing. I just I know where the priest lives. So I'm gonna ride my bike across town and knock on his door and he was home. And I said, Father, can I go to confession? She said, sure. And when I left, I remember being overwhelmed by three clear and distinct thoughts. My first was God, I'm so grateful. It was so so much gratitude of just for his mercy and just realizing, God, I didn't deserve any of this. You're so good. You've set me free of my sins. Second thought was, God, if you ever want me to be, if you want me to be a priest, I will hear anyone's confession anytime they ask me. And from a person who is and <laughs> doesn't like church and would never consider being a priest to have that be my second thought was was very uh significant for me my third thought was well she's really cute you know it's a girl walking down the street which as you know in roman catholicism priests are are celibate unmarried and without families and so it's like oh what do i do now um but but it was so so i was so grateful because then as i mentioned i had been given the question now for the answer. And now the answers all made sense, but now I just, I just wanted to learn more and more, but I look back at that moment, you know, Pope Benedict in his uh, encyclical, he has a letter called God is love. And I think on the first page, maybe the second or third paragraph, he says, being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty ideal, right? It's not just that I want to be good or I want to do great things. He says, being a Christian is the result of an encounter with a person that gives one's life a new horizon and sets it in a decisive direction. And I realized that is what happened. I had an awareness by the Holy Spirit of my own sin. Then I had an encounter with Jesus through sacrament of confession and, and the power of his grace and the Holy Spirit. In that encounter, I mean, I stepped off that front porch and it, with a new horizon and a decisive direction, even though I didn't know, it took a while <laughs> for that to all mm -hmm. unfold. But I realized that almost every step from that moment 
was, okay, I need to learn how to pray. As I said, I need to, I need to learn. And so I remember one of the, even the driving forces of where I chose to go to university was first Peter saying, always be ready to give a reason for the faith that's within you or for the hope that's within you. And I want to go to a school where I can learn why, why do I believe what I believe and, and how can I understand this more fully? How can I do God's will? And that was the driving factor was number one, how can I know as much as I can about God? And number two was how can I do God's will in everything? And so that was, that was, I mean, all through junior high, high school, we, as we call it here in the United States. And then at university was this, that, that was the, if there was ever, I mean, it's not like I did it perfectly. Let me clarify. <laughs> Let me clarify. There are plenty of uh, normal real life in all of this, but, uh, but that was the kind of the guiding star was, okay, God, I want to know you and I want to do your will. And, uh, even when I got off track, there was that God's grace. So for example, I finished university and I had a degree in theology and I became a missionary in Central America. And at that time, I had, there was, it was a moment where I had, had more or less fallen away. And it was just crazy to think because I was a Catholic missionary at a Catholic mission going to daily mass. And I, I, I hated the Catholic church. It was kind of one of those situations where I was just uh, antagonistic to certain church teachings. And so I had this chip on my shoulder that was really pronounced. And again, God's grace, God's grace is so good because um, not only did he break through my intellect because I had some resistance to some church, church, certain Catholic church teachings, but also my heart, because I had this great amount of pride. Um, you know, it's funny because I say pride and pride is like this nice way of saying, oh, I had a lot of pride. It kind of sounds kind of humble, sounds kind of holy, but I was a jerk. <laughs> that's just the, that's the, the, the word, the word that would really summarize it is that I just, you know, kind of jerky to people. And if I thought I knew the answer, then I knew the answer. And uh, I thought I was right. And everyone else was wrong, including uh, the church. And uh, man, it, I'm so grateful to the Lord because there, when I was in Central America, good other missionaries who helped me, other priests who helped me. And then it was God's grace that I got to the end, actually the middle of that time there. And he broke through my heart, broke through my head. And I knew in a very clear way that my next step was to go to seminary and see if God was calling me to be a priest. So actually in, in the process of studying theology, you were learning a lot of abstract ideas, but you're very, very good at uh, articulating those ideas in a way that ordinary people can understand. So you take the abstract and you ground it in something, uh, and particularly for young people. I want to come on to your work with young people. And so when was it becoming obvious that you had a means of connection with youth? That's a great question. I, I, you know, the first thing is uh, two things. One is I was being invited to speak to youth. That was, that was, that was the first thing is that people would say, Hey, would you come and talk to our youth group? Would you come talk to our high schoolers? Or, or even when I was in the seminary, it was connected to a university. And so it was, Hey, would you go? talk, talk to some of the college students, or they would seek me out to have conversations. And I was just really grateful for that and didn't think too much of it. <laughs> I wasn't, I don't think, don't know if I was very oblivious, but I just thought, oh yeah, of course, this is where we can help. This is, this is, uh, where I can try to under, as I'm understanding things, this is where I might be able to be of service. And one thing in particular, we were assigned a parish to, to spend a few hours a week at, uh, for the last four years of seminary. And 
I, I think I averaged anywhere between 20 to 40 hours a week out there. I, I spent a lot of time in the parish. And from the very, very first year, I was working with a group of uh, ninth graders. Uh, who, that would be, I think, for, first form, if you have forms in, in high school, like 14, 15-year-olds, somewhere in there. And, and I was studying all this theology. And then I would go out and teach this these 14, 15-year-olds and realizing that, okay, what I studied all day today and was fascinated by, I cannot, for the life of me, articulate it in a way that is making sense to them or is compelling for them. And it was the best. I mean, that was the first couple of weeks of just going back out there and because it's kind of a almost a country parish, going out there and thinking, wait a second. I thought I understood it when I was in the classroom, when I was in my room studying this, I got it. But now I'm trying to explain it to 15 year olds and I don't get it. And it was the best. It was, I am so grateful because that highlighted the fact to me that I can, I can write a paper for this you know, graduate level class, but if I can't explain it to 15 year olds, then I don't really understand it yet. But you don't know that you don't know something until you have to teach it. Absolutely. Oh, completely. And also teach it to whatever level. And and mm -hmm. that, that has that has been that was so good for me. You know, C.S. Lewis, I remember he, he's one of my favorites, uh, but uh, C.S. Lewis, he gave a talk, I think it was to seminarians and youth ministers. And in this talk, he said something along the lines of the final exam for those before they get ordained before and they get sent out into into parishes, into churches. The final exam should be you give you're given a topic of theology and then you have to go explain it to the dock workers in, in London kind of a situation. He says, because if you can't, if you can't do that, we're not going to send you there. Just like if you didn't speak Chinese, we're not going to send you to China. If you're going to be a missionary to uh, Africa, we're not going to send you. It, you're not If you don't know the language of that culture, then we're not going to send you there. So if you can't actually explain something in a way that the people will understand it, then you're not ready to go out there. And I, that was so convicting because I like, I want to know this. So the, when it came to youth was the first was I wasn't being invited to do it. And I was really challenged by it. And then ultimately really is when I finally got ordained, the bishop at the time, he said, Father Mike, I want you to be the director of youth ministry for the diocese. And I want you to be the chaplain at the university. This is a, a little bit after I got ordained. And so I was just kind of assigned here and it was a matter of, okay, so all of these, all of these, uh, I guess, skills for lack of a better term, all these, uh, ways of explaining stuff that has come in handy. I've been trying to shape and hone over the last number of years. And now I really get to do that on a, on a daily basis, multiple times a day. In fact, I'm really fascinated because you, you're speaking to young people and you're delivering a very traditional Orthodox Christian doctrine. A few years ago, you wrote the book Made for Love, Same-Sex Attraction in the Catholic Church. So you're not dodging any of these really divisive issues where lots of young people are finding that the church is not in the same place that they are. And yet you get away with it. Mm. How, do you, how do you get away with it? How do you not get cancelled? Mm. Well, that could still come, I guess. <laughs> but... Uh... But, you know, the only reason, even even that book or even years before that book, I had given a talk that they kind of, that the Ignatius Press was the, or the folks who um, published that book. They said, hey, would you, would you make a book based off of this talk that I had given? Um, and this talk was to high schoolers. And the reason why I gave that talk wasn't because 
I, 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 I'm pretty agreeable. I think for the most part, like I don't, I don't, someone asked me the other day, like you like get in there, like kind of rumble, like get in there and fight. I'm like, nah, actually I, I really like people and I like people liking me and <laughs> just like anyone else. But the reason why I knew I needed to give that talk was, and then subsequently write the book is because I saw so many people hurting and so many people misunderstanding what, as you mentioned, the traditional Orthodox teaching of Christianity is, or misrepresenting it, or, or even, you know, having these extremes where one extreme is, um, we love you so much that just do what you want. And the other extreme being, no, this is the truth. So I don't care what it, what that truth does to you. I don't care what you feel about that truth because this is the truth. We have to just say it. And just having this conviction in my heart of, of okay, but I know people who this is part of their story. And what would, what do I need them to know about this? Well, I need them to know, okay, here's the teaching, but also I need them to know that they're good. I need them to know that God loves them. I need them to know that they belong in the church. Yes, we all have a brokenness in us. We all have different desires that we have to say no to. We all have, we all have our cross to carry. And Jesus says that when it comes to being my disciple, every one of you is going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. This happens to be one of those areas, but, but this is not an us and them issue. I'm really trying to communicate. It's just having in my heart that really trying to communicate that you're wanted and you're home in the church. Even if the church also says certain behaviors remain sins. And and so I I wonder if I know I know people who have have you know heard me talk about it and walked away angry or read the book and still disagree. And, and that's obviously someone's prerogative, but hopefully, hopefully no one can walk away saying he doesn't care or he doesn't get it, or he wasn't really representing Christianity authentically or, you know, in that, in that truth way. And I think that that's, that's the goal. The goal is people, right? The goal is helping people get to know who Jesus is and not disqualify themselves. I've, I've, you've probably met people like this too, who, you know, when it comes to whatever their struggle is in, in, or whatever their failure has been, the temptation that so many of us face is because of that struggle or because of that failure, I'm disqualified. And if there's any religion where you're not disqualified by your struggles or by your failures, it has to be Christianity. It has to be, I mean, the whole, the whole show is, is based on the prerequisite that we've failed, right? The whole, all of it is based off the fact that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So the wound is when people say this struggle disqualifies me, this failure disqualifies me. Hopefully uh, when the hero is talking about this, that they, they know, okay, at the very least um, I'm still loved. And at the very least I'm still wanted. And at the very least someone gets it. Traditionalists have criticized, say, Pope Francis for being what they would consider quite liberal when, in, in respect mm -hmm. of some of the statements, public statements that he makes. Do you think he's being misunderstood? Do you think he's really trying to walk the line between the orthodox doctrine and the pastoral sensitivity that you're talking about? That's a great question because, there. I mean, honestly, in, 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 candidly, I... There are times when I, I'm just really troubled and I think I, is, is, is that the best way to say this? You know, sometimes I just, I think, or is this the best uh, approach to take? And other times I, I see, so for example, I, I see 
the Holy Father making certain statements that seem to be like walking away from Orthodox Catholicism. And then on the other hand, he says something very, very clearly that reaffirms this, the Orthodox uh, teaching of the church. And because of that, you know, what, what I have to do is, so St. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, founder of the Jesuits, at one point he said, if you see your brother saying or doing something, I'm paraphrasing, you see your brother saying or doing something that seems scandalous or seems wrong, seems incorrect, um, the best attitude you can have is to assume the best. And, and if they are wrong, then the next best thing you do is try to understand what they mean by this. And if they mean something that's incorrect, then you can correct them. Um, but one of the things, as I've seen Pope Francis a number of times say something I, I scratch my head at and go, ah, really? But on the other hand, then he says something that's very orthodox. I think, okay, wait, maybe just like you said, Tony, maybe maybe what I can give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I can say that is not what I would do. But A, the Holy Spirit didn't make me Pope. <laughs> and so I'm off the hook on that one. But B, maybe, maybe he's trying to walk a line that I've I've never been asked asked to walk, and I never have to walk, and I don't know. I don't mean I don't mean to equivocate there. I just mean that yes, I I can. Uh, there are times when I think I ah, I don't know I don't know why you'd say that, and other times where I think, well, um, I know that. I know that uh, the Lord is still present. So much is shallow these days. Pictures, but not words. Texts that seem impersonal, tweets rather than conversation. It can leave us all feeling rather empty. At Premier Christianity, we go deeper to bring you a thought-provoking and credible mix of theological articles, biblical interpretation, interviews, debates, and trends. Premier Christianity, online, in print, in depth. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. I'm going to come back to something you said a little while ago about pride having been an issue for you. And you only have to look at a few of the Steubenville conference videos to know that you've acquired almost rock star status in terms of your appearances there. And for most people, that that could be their undoing. And so what practical steps do you take uh, to avoid falling? I mean, we've seen lots of high profile Christian leaders fall. Uh, so what, what what practical steps do you do to, to safeguard your heart? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I would say this, you know, it's fascinating because you, we have the youth conferences, like you mentioned, student conferences, we have our, our college level conferences or any, any, some of any of those big events. Um, if someone were to say, if that's where you live, if that's where a person lived, then it, yeah, there would be a, a really big danger of, uh, as they say, believing one's own press. Uh, the great news is I, I visit those conferences a couple times a year, you know, a few, number of times, but I live here on this college campus, on this university campus. And it's kind of like this. It's where, uh, it's where when you come home, the kids don't care who is excited to see you when you are gone. When you come home, they only care. Okay. Is, is he here for us now? And, and that, that, that's what matters the most. Um, I recognize that I hope, I hope that what is said at these conferences, what's said at these large group events, when I get to get a chance to preach, when I get a chance to teach, 
hope that it actually changes hearts. I hope that it helps people get closer to the Lord. I hope that it it helps the kingdom. But I also know that the primary assignment, the primary duty task that the Lord has given to me and placed me in has been, okay, be a spiritual father to these university students, to be to these high school students. Um, and if I'm not, if I'm an absentee father, because I want to go off to the conference or I'm absentee father because I want to go off to the next thing that I'm, I'm, I'm failing in that primary role. And so the great news is I, when I go to the conferences, it's kind of uncomfortable um, I want to be as gracious as I can to people. And I just think, oh, you guys, you don't know. This is ridiculous. I, 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 I mean, I'm grateful. I hope I helped you in some way. But when I come home, sometimes I'm less, I, sometimes on, on campus, I wish that they were more excited to see me, <laughs> but because I'm like, maybe it'd help get more people to mass. Maybe more people would like really want to, you know, give their hearts to Jesus if they were more excited to see me. Um, but, uh, but ultimately I know that that's not, you know, I, I really truly believe this. I've said this before. I'm going to, I'll repeat it. Uh, I, I believe that the gospel you know, that people, we can preach the gospel from the stage. Yes, absolutely. That happens. But I, I really believe that in the 21st century right now, where we're at in this, in this time, that the gospel will be advanced primarily through friendships and through family and okay. it's relationships, what people are starved for. And so our students, uh, again, when I'm home, they don't care where I've been. They just want to know now that you're here, are you here for us? And that's really humbling. Um, so hopefully, hopefully it keeps my feet on the ground really teed up the, the question I was going to follow on with, and that is that uh, your, your podcasting and your, uh, your online material is, is really uh, giving people uh, an attractive, credible, winsome uh, theology that they can relate to. Uh, you've sort of colonized people's headspace, if you like. You've 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 given people, you've brought people to the place where they say, right, I'm ready to make a commitment. So you've built a bridgehead, but it seems that that bridge has to end up with bringing the people into the reality of a local parish, the the, the context of of their faith coming alive within within the church. And and I worry that the local church isn't particularly for the, the, the traditional confessing churches, Catholics, Anglicans, Methodists, where we see great decline, and particularly amongst young people. The church that's receiving these people might go expecting to find the local Father Mike and be rather disappointed. So how is it that the local church has to do their bit to meet yeah. the bridge that you're building? That's a great question, because that's one of the, it was one of my fears, you know, years ago, I don't know if, uh, years ago, there was even more than just, um, we'll tell you the story. There's a young man, uh, his name's Andrew and Andrew was on a flight from somewhere in the middle of the country, uh, the United States to Los Angeles where he lived. And he was sitting next to a woman who they, he, he, she asked him where he was, what he was doing. And he's, he said, I'm a Catholic musician. Uh, and I just came back from a, a musician's conference and heading back home to LA. And she said, well, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And so for two hours, he said, they had this conversation, like having this kind of debate, apologetics, you know, back and forth about God's existence. And, and, uh, Andrew is a really speaking of winsome, a very winsome, uh, man and very intelligent. And ever so often he would notice that the temperature in the room was getting the, on the plane was getting a little hot, you know, like, okay. So he just calm it down by saying, isn't it great that we get to get to have this honest conversation about God on a plane, you know? And, and so finally he realized that it wasn't getting anywhere. And 
he said, okay, but this woman had complained or she had shared with him that she had had foot pain in both of her feet for her entire life, that even sitting on the, on the plane, her feet were in pain. And every time she walked, her feet were in pain and she didn't know, no, she had no awareness of history, a memory where there was no pain in her feet. And so Andrew was like, he's just prompted by the spirit. And he said, um, well, what about this? If, if, if I prayed with you and God healed your feet, would you believe in Jesus, would you give your life to him? And she's like, well, yeah, if he healed me, I mean, that would, that would be it. You know, the arguments kind of ceased. And he was just like, well, what if God showed up essentially? And so he said, well, can I pray with you? And she says, sure. And so he said, okay, meet me at baggage claim after we, you know, land to get our bags and stuff. And the story unfolds where she walks up to him. She's like, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> and she's being kind of sassy. And he's like, okay, well, have, let's have a seat over here. And he's, is it okay if I can just put my hand on your shoulder? And, and he starts praying 30 seconds into this. She's like, wait, what are you doing right now? And he's like, why? what's happening? She said, the pain is ebbing. The pain is, is going away. And he said, okay, let's keep praying. And I'm about you to you know, even, I don't know if he said this exactly, but like, you know, pray the name of Jesus because he's the one who's healing you. Basically after two minutes, she stood up and she walked up, but she ran, trotted up and down the, the concourse there or the baggage claim healed. And she was like, oh my gosh, I've healed. How did you do that? He said, it wasn't me. It was Jesus healing through you. You know that he is who he says he is. He is God, you know, kind of thing. And I remember him telling the story and being so moved by it. Like, that's amazing. And Andrew, your, your boldness, I'm so grateful for this and this woman. And then that was, that's where I stopped and said, oh man, this woman, where does she go from here? And that sense of imagine her showing up on Sunday morning to this church or showing up on Wednesday, you know, knocking on the doors of the offices saying, okay, so Jesus healed me last night. Um, what do I do now? And realizing that so many of our churches, so many of our parishes are ill-equipped for someone who has had an encounter with Jesus to say, okay, what do I do now in a way that I give my life to him in a radical way, as opposed to kind of just, oh yeah, we will show up on Sunday. Or, or we have some classes that start in three months from now that you can kind of learn more about Christianity, about Catholicism. And so what you're asking, Tony, is, is 100% is something I, I, that's been weighing on my heart. So what we've been doing, what we're trying to do at the university, at least, we've been trying to say, okay, how do we incorporate an ongoing, active, and intentional discipleship with the young people that we're walking with? And not only in the discipleship that gets them to a place where they're able to, they're able to, to to follow the Lord in, in a more mature way, but also a discipleship that helps them become disciple makers, right? That helps them walk with others as well. And that's, it's one of the, the primary goals we have on our campus is not only to walk with the young people who have an encounter with the Lord. And that means I know how to pray when I'm feeling like praying. And I know how to pray when I'm not feeling like praying. I know how to uh, allow the Lord to pick me back up after I've fallen. I, I know how to, you know, they all go home in the summertime, they all go home over breaks and they get to experience, okay, this is what life is like without this strong community there to support me. So I'm learning how to do that, but also I'm learning, we're trying to help them to learn how to be that to other people so that when we do get to parishes, there is a you know, squadron of individuals who have been discipled and know how to do the next step. But, but you're describing, what you're describing is, is, is one of the concerns that I have. And that is that this is not the reality for most parishes. Yeah, I, I, and we talk often about the re-evangelization of, of Europe uh, and mm -hmm. uh, the necessity of that. But it's almost, in some cases, the re-evangelization of the church. You know, there's, yeah, there's, yes. there's a sense of, of uh, that the bishops have to get their head around this. It would seem. Yeah, and that's why I love like what you're what you're what you're saying and doing uh, as evangelicals is that sense of 
you know, we have a saying, uh, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Uh, he has children. <laughs> he, God's not a grandfather. He is a father. And so my family, my parents, they might have faith. But if this is going to move forward, I have to have an encounter with the living God. And I have to say, my, give him my yes. And it can't just be I'm writing off of the, uh, the yes of my parents or my grandparents or the fact that, you know, my pedigree is that I was raised, as you said, Anglican or Catholic or whatever. I'd like to move on to talk a little bit more about uh, your podcasting. But uh, before we leave youth, I just want to uh, give you the opportunity to make a comment maybe on World Youth Day. We've just seen World Youth Day in Lisbon, Portugal, and, and uh, one and a half million young Catholics meeting in, in Lisbon is pretty impressive. And, and do you have any any comments on what, what took place there? <laughs> you know, it's, fu it's funny. Uh, two things. One is I wasn't there. But I have been to maybe, I think, six. Uh, when I was in, in 1993, I was just uh, 18 years old, I believe. And I went to my first World Youth Day in Denver, Colorado. And it was a fun time. Um, it was a good time. It was a good next step for me. Uh, I know a lot of people who had a profound encounter with the Lord and uh, that changed their lives there. I uh, went to a number of others and so it, it was fine. And, and I haven't been back uh, recently. And what I saw looked, um, there, there, there's something there. I went, I know when John Paul II, uh, had called them to, to be, began them, there was some kind of, you know, energy that was really, really beautiful and powerful. It was oriented towards evangelization, oriented towards, uh, getting the youth of the world together that they realized that, okay, you're, you know, your parish, you know, your local church, and, and that's wonderful. Hopefully it's, it's a blessing to you. And the church is bigger than just your local church and local parish. And that's so good. Uh, the second thing about the world you say though, is that I didn't get a chance to go because we, in our, our local diocese here, we have a camp that we put on for young people for ages, maybe, um, like 11 to about 14. And then we have our high schoolers from 15 to 19 or 20. Um, they help with the camp. And so for two weeks back to back, we had this local camp and it was, uh, I remember I got pictures from, from some friends who were like, Hey, we're at your world youth day. Here's the, all the excitement going on. And I was like, that's so great. It's really beautiful. I am so grateful a that I'm sleeping inside B that. Yep. There's only a couple hundred uh, kids here at this camp each week, but the opportunity to make a lasting impact, to be part of a lasting impact and their lives uh, for me this last summer was, was, was worth not having a chance to go to Portugal, even though it looked like a good time. <laughs> so let's move into your your, your podcasting. And, and, and listeners will probably know you most through Bible in a Year. You launched that in 2021. We were sort of coming out of COVID more or less. We were sort of struggling out of COVID at the time. The idea must have arisen before COVID hit. How, how did the idea come about? Yeah, and it actually happened after. Um, what happened was in, you know, as you know, March 2020 was a pretty uh, tumultuous month. And I found myself at the end of March, beginning of April, you know, I was probably like so many other people, I was grasping for more information. I was, I was always on the internet searching for the next person who had a lot of wisdom, a lot of wise things to say, a lot of uh, a new perspective on what was going on. And I found myself I always say it like this, I, I found myself being very uh, distracted 
and disturbed. It was it was constantly like I'm looking for the next thing, next thing. At the same time, I was reading the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and I was so struck by, oh, this, how what we're living through now is serious, and it is, it is devastating for many people. But this is not the worst it's ever been. And I just was thinking about here's the book of Judges where generations of God's people were in this place of tumultuousness and this place of desperation, this place of destruction, this place of powerlessness, like we talked about before, you know, growing up and realizing that, wait a second, I need not just the wisdom of the world. I really need the wisdom of the Lord. And so I need to re recover. And I think all of us need to recover a biblical worldview, a biblical lens. And so with all that kind of coming together, I thought, well, you know what? It would be great if I could just read the Bible every day for a year and we get the whole Bible out there in a podcast. So I wrote to Ascension Press and said, I'd, I'd done some stuff with them in the past and I still do, and said, "Would you? Guys, what do you guys think about this? And they said, that sounds great. <laughs> so let's get on it. And that started uh, that Bible in a Year podcast. It was such a such a gift, but it came out of my own need. And that was the thing. It wasn't like, I, I think this is what the, the prescription is for the world. It was, it came out of my own need. I, I realized this is what the prescription has to be for me because I find myself in this place of distraction. I find this place, myself in this place of distress and I need to root myself in God's word and to recover again, that biblical worldview where it's not just for my prayer time. This is for all time. It's when I look at the world, the way God looks at the world. And I'm guessing you were as surprised as everybody else at how it just shot yes. to the top of the charts in the US, not just in the religious section, but in in all categories. It was it was number one, wasn't it, for quite a few months and, and yeah, similarly yeah. Well, in the UK. Uh, for, for a few weeks, I think, especially when as people have their they begin their uh, their uh, New Year's resolutions and whatnot. Uh, but I, I thought, yeah, yeah, it was a complete shock. I think it was I day one, two, three, four, a couple weeks into that first year. And then the last couple of years, it goes up to number one for maybe a week or so. <laughs> and just realize, you know, human nature being what it is, um, we all want the fresh start. But that was a, that was a big, yeah, a really big shock. I did not anticipate that at all. So the demographic I think is probably wider than your normal listener group. Right. Uh, and the feedback you're getting? Yeah. You know, is... I, the feedback has been remarkable uh are you familiar with christian smith and he's a sociologist he used to be at university of notre or uh, north carolina chapel hill now he's at notre dame but he had done this this survey of american adolescents years ago i i'm thinking maybe almost 20 years ago and one of the things he found was the faith it was on the faith life of american adolescents and he found this he said they did not expect to find this but as they were interviewing Adolescents who were raised mainline Protestant, Catholic, evangelical, um, if they were raised without any faith, if they uh, were raised Jewish, um, he said that all, all of them, though, had the same religion. And it was a couple of tenets of this kind of, I guess, maybe say American or maybe just say Western, modern, postmodern religion that he, he termed moralistic therapeutic deism. It was moralistic in the sense that, okay, God's good wants you to kind of be good. Um, it's therapeutic in the sense that God is is only involved when you really need him to solve some problem. And it was deist in the sense that, you know, God is distant. He's he's not really involved in your day-to-day -day lives. Everyone goes to heaven when they die, or good people do, but you're all good, exactly that kind of thing. And and basically we just accepted this, this kind of this 
this caricature essentially of the God of the Bible. And one of the things that I've discovered over the last number of years of being able to read the Bible and having people who are saying that I've never read the Bible before and got the whole story. And even if these are people who I go to church every, every week, I, I go to church regularly. Um, I know a lot of the Bible stories to give them the entire story and try to explain it. They're getting an actual picture of God as he reveals himself for the first time. And in those moments, this is, is fascinating and it, it's heartbreaking, but it's also encouraging. In those moments, I have had people reach out to me and say, nope, I'm done. I'm out. Like I just, I just, uh, I had a vision of God that was, you know, from my Sunday school days or a vision of God that was from my whatever teacher or pastor or whoever it was. And I can't take this God of the Bible. On the other hand, there have been so many people. I mean, I truly could not tell you how many people have reached out to me saying, I didn't know the full story. It was challenging, but this is who God really is. This is the true story of the God who truly loves me. Not edited um, the whole thing, not just an excerpt here or there. And their response to the full proclamation of the full Bible has been overwhelming. And that's why I would say that it's as a remedy to this moralistic therapeutic deism of just kind of the, again, a caricature or characterization essentially of God by just letting people hear the whole story and try to explain it as best I can, I think has, I think has challenged more people than they thought they'd be challenged. I think they thought that they would be consoled a lot. I think they'd learn. They thought they would learn. I think that they thought they would be inspired. I don't know that they realized they would be convicted and challenged and others challenged in such a way that they're like, yes. And that's the God that I, I will worship from now until the day I die which is amazing, amazing. You've talked about your relationship with Jesus. You've talked about that that personal relationship. You've talked about prayer. And the, the average listener here might say, yes, I'm into all of that. And I've got all of those things. What does the Catholic Church add to any of that? One of the articles in the Catechism highlights the fact that there is goodness and there is holiness in all Christian communities. Um, there's goodness and holiness there, that the Holy Spirit, is evident in many Christian communities. And so as you're saying, like, wait, I have a relationship with Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit. There's gifts of healing. There's gifts of, of prophecy. There's, there's, there's incredible, you know, charismatic gifts. There are people who are evangelical who are doing amazing, amazing things in spreading God's word and in bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And so good, not taking anything away from that. One of the things that the Catholic Church says, though, is that while that is true, and while there is so much goodness in all the Christian denominations, the church makes a kind of a bold claim that <laughs> could seem arrogant, and I don't want to come across as arrogant, though, but would say that, yes, there is goodness and truth, holiness in all Christian communities, but that the fullness of truth subsists in the Catholic church, not because all individual Catholics are the holiest or the best or the smartest or any, not, you just have, you just, you only have to meet a Catholic to realize that's not true, <laughs> but because here is God who has, we believe that Jesus in Matthew 16, when he said, okay, Simon, your name is Peter, your name is rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Um, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. They bind on earth is bound on, on heaven and loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And, and that Jesus actually did come to establish a kingdom on this earth. And for 1500 years, that kingdom uh, was known as, as the Catholic church. 
and everything good. And again, I don't mean to say this in a, in a arrogant way or in a, in a condescending way, but everything good that we find in so many Christian communities has its root in that church that Jesus founded. And so, so many, so many incredible evangelicals who have the Holy spirit and they have the knowledge of scripture, like, oh yeah. And the scripture came to us through the Catholic church and, and the Holy spirit. Yes. Who blows, blows where he wills. And that, there's that, but that sense of like, wouldn't you want the fullness of the truth? And not only that, but to be, I, I love this. I love this notion. So every mass, I just have to say every mass that we're at on campus and we're at, whenever I go anywhere, there's a moment where, you know, cause since we're not in communion that we can't as Catholics, we can't offer communion to all those who are not Catholic or practicing Catholics. So in that moment where it's painful and it's difficult because we typically just ignore the fact that we're, we're divided, we typically kind of say, hey, variety is a spice of life. It's all good. In those moments where I just pause and say, okay, everyone, this is painful. But we have to also remember that Jesus, when he gave us the Eucharist at the Last Supper, he also begged his father that we would be one. He begged us when he gave us this gift, he begged his father that we wouldn't be divided. And that when we're one, the world will know that Jesus is who he says he is and would glorify the father. So let's take a moment right now and pray for the unity of all Christians. Like, and actually take that, that pain. It's just, it's uncomfortable to not be able to receive communion or not be able to offer, transform that pain into prayer and try to get a heart like Jesus is because Jesus wants us to be one. And so every day or, or every, at least every Sunday, every, every couple of days a week, I will pray for the unity of all Christians because I believe that when, when we're one again, all the great gifts, and I, I, I hope this is God's will for us, when we're one again, all the incredible gifts that are in the evangelical church, all the incredible gifts that are in the Baptist church, all the incredible gifts that, are, that Christians have developed for the last 500 years, that when we're brought back together, that we don't have less of those gifts, but we have them in their, in their fullness. That's just, that's, and again, that, 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 maybe that sounds like I'm just blowing smoke, but I really mean it. I, I really, and I've been trying to ask the Lord to give me that heart, that heart like his, that begs his father to help all the disciples of Jesus become one. As we just draw this to a close, I want to ask what's next for Father Mike, Bishop Mike? Uh-huh. No, I don't have those gifts. I don't have those skills. Um, the, uh, well, the, the, actually my bishop, speaking of, um, he, uh, so we, I operate out of a little small house right across uh, the campus from the university for the last 19 years. Uh, this is the start of my 19th year. And um, just recently, we were able to buy, honestly, by God's providence, by his grace, we're able to purchase most of the land on this block that we're on. And so now the bishop has said, okay, Father Mike, uh, the next thing is you need to raise money to build a, a church and Newman Center here for the university students and for the community. And so... I'm also not qualified to do that. So I will just continue to trust in the Lord and, uh, and do my best. And hopefully, yeah, God willing that gets the sooner that gets done, the sooner I, we can do the next in a year thing. But the, uh, the immediate task that the Bishop has said is, okay, I need you to raise money to build this church and this, uh, Newman center named after John Henry Cardinal Newman, uh, another Englishman. Um, as soon as I get done with that, then, uh, then we'll see what the Lord has after that. So you always end your podcast with, I'm praying for you, please pray for me. Uh, so what 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 can listeners pray for you in particular, Father Mike? You know, thank you for that. And I do, I, I every day, every single day, I'm praying for everyone who listens. Um, I, there's a, there's a lot happening 
you know, there's a just, and I just want to be faithful to the Lord. Um, I want it to be done excellently, like in such a way that all of our students on campus are reached by the gospel, that they all have an encounter with Jesus in a way that changes their their lives and changes their eternities. And so that's that's what weighs heavily on me. Um, there's also this project, as I said, you know, fundraising, which again, is not my, it's not up my alley. It is a uh, entirely new thing. Um, but uh, but in all that, I, I just really want to have that attitude that says, okay, God, I know that I know that this all matters. You know, I really believe there's nothing neutral to the soul that God can use everything we're going through, um, not only for our own sanctification, our own purification, but also for for the for the world. We can unite it all. So I just I just I, what I need for is for is to be faithful in that and uh, don't get in the way of uh, of others coming to, to get close to Jesus. I think that's that's the number one thing I think right now. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners will be praying for you. Father Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm so grateful, Tony. Thank you so much. God bless. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.